This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. another episode of Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Before we get started on today's episode, we are currently booking speaking engagements for 2024. Now, we've told you how much we love doing this and how much we learn from being in your communities. However, we also want to make clear that we bring an enormous amount of value, don't we, Beth? We do. We have now spoken with small churches and libraries. We have spoken to the global workforce at PayPal. We have talked to the student bodies at giant state schools and small liberal arts universities. What we know is that no matter where we are, when we leave, we get feedback that it was the most engaging event the organization has had in years. Because we do in person what we do here on the podcast. We don't shy away from hard truths. We always say we're willing to talk about anything. We make great efforts to understand the challenges before a particular community of people that we're spending time with. We give grace and empathy so people leave feeling like we listen to their problems and we offered realistic strategies to move forward. I told a group last week, Sarah, it is important to me to be useful. Yes. I want to leave a speaking event knowing that no one felt their time was wasted and we gave them something that they could put into practice that very day. Now, that is definitely an orienting principle here at Pantsuit Politics. We do not like to waste anybody's time because I don't like to have my time wasted. That's right. It's my number one pet peeve. We pride ourselves on this work, you guys. No talk is ever the same. We often have repeat customers, which is the biggest compliment. So if your organization is struggling to meet goals or is facing a tough transition or feeling disconnected, then reach out and let's see if we can come and speak and help. So one of the ways we try to approach the news in a more honest way, is by acknowledging that the news is more than breaking headlines. So rarely is it just the facts. Our news environment is informed by our politics and our civic culture, and for lack of a better term, the vibe. And what both of us, and we think probably many of you have felt over the past several years, is that the vibe is extremely intense right now. It's a little intense right now. And let me just say, as the left-leaning member of Pantsu Politics, I think the vibe is especially intense on our side of the aisle. With stakes so high during the Trump years, during the pandemic, for all of us, but particularly for vulnerable groups of Americans, I think we all felt this pressure to show up in the most impactful ways possible at all the times, all the times, through our politics, through our language, through our choices and consumers. And the conversation we're sharing with you today is an effort to take a deep breath, and a step back and ask, how is that working? And to do that, we have a scholar who I have greatly admired for several years now. Yasha Monk is here. Yasha is a professor of international affairs at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Affairs. He is one of the world's leading experts on the crisis of liberal democracy and the rise of populism. In his new book, The Identity Trap, Yasha explores the academic history of how many of our current popular progressive ideas surrounding identity, and why putting identity at the center of our social, cultural, and political life can work against our shared goals in a liberal democracy. Now listen, this conversation starts really dense with the academic history, so we can lay a foundation of what we're talking about, but stick with us. 
And if you get into this beginning conversation and think, wait, I'm lost. Beth has done a primer on this first part of Yasha's book on our premium channels yesterday on Monday. So that'll help you like lay a foundation so you don't feel like you've been thrown into the deep end. But reading Yasha's book, the emotion I felt most often was relief. Relief that someone was naming what I was feeling when it comes to our civil discourse on the left. And we hope that he named something you've been feeling as well. And that's why we hope you stick with the conversation. As always, with a topic that is this vast, we will not mention everything worth mentioning. Mm -hmm. This is one conversation about one book, and it doesn't even hit everything that's in this book. It is a very rich text, and we know it will launch further conversations with all of you after the episode, and we really look forward to that. We trust you with challenging discussions because you've shown over and over that you trust us to start them and to keep them going long after the episode is over. And we're going to wrap it up real light, and we're going to talk about the new New York Times game connections at the end on Outside of Politics, so stick around for that as well. So without further ado, Yasha Monk. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Yasha, welcome to Pantsuit Politics. We are thrilled to have you. I'm so excited for this. Okay, here's the first question. We got to get it out of the way. I told Beth, I said, if we don't tackle this first, <laughs> people will struggle to listen to the rest of it. Why are we engaging in analysis and critique of the progressive side of the political spectrum when the right side of the political spectrum is 
so destructive to democracy generally, I think, is a pretty objective statement. So why why do we want to focus on this side of the political spectrum when that side of the political spectrum is so dysfunctional? Well, first of all, I agree with you. So I was a graduate student in political science when I started seeing a lot of far-right populists doing very well in elections in Europe. And coming from Europe and observing this from quite close up, I was very concerned about that. And I was surprised that many of my professors were very smart people didn't seem that worried about it. They didn't like those political parties, but they thought, look, they're always going to stay in opposition. And, um, you know, yes, democracy is quite brittle, it's quite fragile, you know, in poorer countries, in countries where it hasn't been around for so long. But, you know, in, in France or the United States, you really don't have to worry about it. And so I was actually one of the first to warn about the real danger that these uh, right-wing populists would pose to democratic institutions. I kind of like to say that I was a democracy hipster. I was, you know, worried about the doom of democracy before it was cool. (laughs) Um, And that's what I've done a lot of my time warning about for the last 10 years. I wrote two books about the dangers of of populism, Um, for example, the people versus democracy, why our freedom is in danger and how to save it. Um, I talked about it endlessly on my podcast. I wrote many articles about it. Um, So I take this very, very seriously. There's nevertheless some reasons to also look at some of the things that might be going wrong on our own end of the political spectrum. One of them is straightforwardly electoral, right? After seven years of fighting somebody like Donald Trump, he's still running even with Joe Biden in polls for the next election. Like, we, we might say, look, this is just because everybody is nuts and, you know, we don't like the average voter. Great, but we still live in a democracy. And that means we have to trust at least somewhat in the wisdom of the average voter. And even if we don't trust in the wisdom, which actually I do in certain ways, we need to at least be able to win. And so perhaps looking in the mirror a little bit and thinking about what could we do better is actually part and parcel of trying to fight against these populists. But beyond that, you know, I think it's just an important question about the kind of society in which we want to live. That at bottom is what I'm driven by. I'm a political theorist by training. And so trying to think about what kind of society do we actually want to build is really important. Now, I don't want to build the kind of society that Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or any of those people are are, are trying to build. But just saying the opposite of whatever they say is going to be a safe guide is pretty bad as well, because then we'll just do a 180 and, you know, they actually get to determine what we believe. And so we have to have serious conversations Mm -hmm. within the left about what kind of society do we want. And I'm on the left in part because I do think uh, the sort of traditional, historical, universalist aspirations of the left to create a world in which how you're treated is less dependent on the group into which you were born. A critique of a pre-existing world precisely because who you were was so determinative on your opportunities, on your treatment, on, on, on how you would live. There was a lot of always appealing uh, to me about the left. And I think that we're giving up on some of that in ways that that are just just, just really counterproductive. And it's all one ecosystem. It's all exists together. So you have to, in a certain extent, I think, look at it together and see how it's complementing, contrasting, you know, having a conversation together. Yeah, absolutely. Yasha, I... I read Persuasion and I listen to The Good Fight and uh, really value your work. And I heard you say on The Good Fight recently, as you were introducing your book, The Identity Trap, that you had done the work and wanted to offer a critique. And I thought that was so clever because something I really value about your work is how you very explicitly go back and forth between 
an academic conception, a philosophical conception of what's happening, and then how that gets flattened out for the masses through Mm. social media and pop culture. And so knowing that that's how you're working in this book, you're telling us here is philosophically and academically how this is developed. And then here is how is how it has translated to the public. Can you just give our audience a description of the identity synthesis and how you got there? Yeah, absolutely. So the book has four parts, right? And, and as I said, in the first part of the book, I really do what, what, what I was trained as as a political theorist, intellectual historian, which is I tell the intellectual roots of what this new set of ideas about race and gender and sexual orientation, which is now so influential, actually come from. The ambition of that part of the book is to say, you know, where are the ideas that start to be really influential in American universities and some other countries' universities by about 2010 come from? And then the second part of the book says, all right, you know, how did those ideas then get popularized and sometimes vulgarized into the form in which they had real mainstream influence by about 2020. And then I go on in the third part to critique some of the applications of those ideas on areas from free speech to cultural appropriation. And then finally to offer, I think, a more ambitious, a more forward-looking humanist, universalist alternative for the kind of society that that we should build. So in the first part of the book, which is the part about intellectual roots, I did the reading, I did the work. Um, This is what I know what to do. This is what I've been trained as, as an academic. And... You know, what's very clear is that the story that's told on the right of American politics at the moment about the origins of wokeness is simply wrong. They they tend to say that this is a form of what we call cultural Marxism, which is meant to be a kind of a little bit of an attack, but but it's also just the wrong intellectual category, right? They think that you can understand this phenomenon by taking traditional Marxist political thought, taking out class and stuffing in these identity categories. Uh, but actually, when you do read the sources of these ideas, that turns out to be wrong. I start my story not with Marx or Marcuse, but with uh, Michel Foucault um, in the 50s and 60s in post-war Paris. Um, and he really is very skeptical of all forms of what he calls grand narrative. Now, one of those grand narratives is philosophical liberalism, is the underpinnings of our democratic political system, but one of them is the Marxist set of ideas that are really influential in the country at, at the time. He clearly sets himself against that. So it's actually started as an opposition to Marxism. And what the tradition takes, I'm just going to very, very briefly t- tell you the key actors, very briefly. So what, what the tradition takes from Foucault is a skepticism towards the possibility of universal truth and an emphasis on political discourses. The idea that power is not just exercised top-down, you know, Joe Biden or uh, Donald Trump tell you what's happening and you're sort of bound by that because we live in a coercive state, but but in these much more informal, complicated ways. Now, this podcast has coercive power through the discourse it um, imposes on society. The, the, we then go to the post-colonialists, um, in particular Edward Said, who says, look, we need to have a more political conception of these discourses. Foucault just wants to sort of understand them and perhaps disrupt them temporarily. He doesn't think it can be better or worse. He's quite quietest in that sense. But actually, you know, the West has always exercised power over the Orient, over the East, uh, through its discourse of Orientalism. And if we change the discourse, if we upset it, we can empower these formerly colonized countries to fight back against the West. And so from this, we take this kind of politicized form of discourse analysis, where what it is to make progress uh, on issues of gender, for example, is to critique the Barbie movie or to praise it or to whatever, right? Like it's, it's all about that kind of discursive 
analysis. And the next step is the work of Gayatri Spivak, who's deeply influenced by the postmodernist, is herself an important translator uh, of that tradition, but who says, look, you know, somebody like Foucault and, and, and later Deleuze, they say that, you know, the workers in Paris can speak for themselves. They don't need intellectuals like us to speak for them. Well, perhaps, but the kind of what you call subaltern people in countries like India, where she's from, they have fewer resources, fewer visibility on the world stage, probably fewer, more obstacles to getting an education. They can't speak for themselves. We do need to speak for them. And so even for this kind of essentialist accounts of identity are philosophically suspicious, dubious. We should pretend that they are right in order to raise consciousness for these groups and allow them to fight back. So she embraces what she calls a strategic essentialism. For essentialist accounts of identity are wrong. For strategic purposes, we should pretend that they're right. We should encourage people to identify by these groups. And then we get to the introduction of the boogeyman of today's political discourse of critical race theory. <laughs> and that starts with someone like Derek Bell, who is a really interesting figure a key lawyer for the NAACP in the 1960s, fighting to desegregate schools and businesses and other establishments uh, throughout the American South and some places in the North as well. But who comes to think of that as a fundamental mistake, who comes to say, actually, we civil rights lawyers weren't listening to our black clients. They wanted better schools, but didn't really care about integrated schools that much. And perhaps Brown versus Board of Education was a mistake. Perhaps actually we should have fought for schools that were separate but truly equal. So this is a very, very radical attack on what he calls the quote-unquote defunct racial equality ideology of the civil rights movement. And it shows really the embrace of a politics in which you're not trying to live up to universal aspirations and principles in the way that Frederick Douglass and, and Martin Luther King and later Barack Obama did, but in which you say, no, if they made false promises, we should reject them. And then you get to Kimberly Crenshaw and the embrace of something like intersectionality. Um, so just to step back, those are sort of the main themes that make up the identity synthesis. When you take together the sort of emphasis on a skepticism towards absolute truth, an embrace of particular forms of politicized discourse analysis, where to do politics is to critique the prevailing discourse, an embrace of strategic essentialism, which now leads many progressive educators in the country to say that their task is to instill the quote-unquote correct racial self-identification identity in their pupils. You take the rejection of universalist politics and an interpretation of intersectionality, which is not Crenshaw's interpretation, but which basically emphasizes that if you are a woman and I'm a man, I can't really understand you. If you stand a different intersection of identities, I can't really understand you. That really makes up a lot of today's political discourse. And, and what I will say is that reading all of these theorists taught me a lot. I disagree with him in some fundamental ways, right? I love Barack Obama. I, I, I deeply admire many of these figures in, in black liberal political thought. You know, people like Derek Bell are, are fundamentally opposed to him. I think he's on the wrong side of that, but he's a smart, interesting academic with real insights and we should take him seriously. And I enjoyed reading the work in, in you know, the, the extensive research for this book. Then these ideas become popularized, memeified on social media and so on in a way that I find much more troubling. And then we get to figures like Robin DiAngelo, who, you know, frankly, I don't think deserve quite the same respect. I have to tell you, reading this history was like, it felt like reading my own memoir in this really weird way. I'm 42 years old. So I was in college in the early 2000s. I was a political science major and a women's studies minor. My professors at the time were obsessed with Foucault. We talked about him all the time. 
I felt like I came to college and the first lesson I got taught was distrust the meta narratives. And it was in, in so many ways, right? Like what I had been taught was how the world worked for my Southern Baptist upbringing was harmful and wrong. And to critique that and to learn the skills of critique were so valuable. And then I, I mean, I can literally just walk through this. Well, then I learned about identity-driven politics and how important it was to be able to consciousness raise and stand in my identity and say, there are parts of this that are essential to my understanding as a political being, and you have to respect that and you have to listen to me. How many times in my life, to my children, to my friends on this podcast, have I said, we are not experts in each other's experiences? One million times, Yasha, I've said it one million times because I believed it. And I still believe it, you know, to a certain extent. But like watching this progression of ideas and realizing like, oh, yeah, this all made sense. I wrote a a blog post on my personal like blog where I said, like, you just have to call something racist. That's the only thing that gets people's attention. Like, this is the most important work we can do is just call out racism. Like all these because there is and I think you do such a good job of articulating this. There is something appealing. We're not saying that everything that you just talked about, all these different political theories, like you said, they are informed and interesting, but that doesn't mean that there are new gospel. You know, like I I have articulated recently, but, you know, full circle back to being a Baptist, that's sort of what it feels like. feels like you're never good enough. Hmm. It feels like nothing is ever good enough. That's where we've gotten to as a space, as opposed to a, a a vision for a better future and a vision of equality and a vision of those universal truths. And especially, I think what accelerated this journey for me was having my 14-year-old parrot back to me this, like these extreme political ideologies. He's learning through that social media lens. He's learning on YouTube mm. and hearing the way they they sound when they come back at you. I mean, I, I, I even, I don't think I fully, under, I know I didn't fully understand the scholarship and history of critical race theory, but Listening to it, it's it reminds me of what you said. Well, maybe there is some fundamental wisdom here because I do think that you spend decades teaching Americans we're all equal. This is the the progress of Martin Luther King and the presidency of Barack Obama. They can hear when the message changes to racism is permanent and there's nothing you can do about it. They hear that. They can hear that and they're reacting not in the best ways, but there are, I think, some honest reactions underneath that that really aren't just about this being a boogeyman. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's why I, I fought hard about what to call the book. And that's why I, I settled on this metaphor of the identity trap, because you know, my book is ultimately critical of, of many of these ideas. But, you know, a trap is something that has a few important attributes, right? One is that it contains a lure, right? There's something that lures you into the trap. And the second is that, you know, good well-intentioned, smart people can end up falling into a trap. You fall into a trap. It's not like, oh, you asshole or you jerk. It's like, oh, like something bad happened to you that you didn't deserve to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, you know, it's it's bad for you, right? You don't want to fall into a trap. And so that's why I kind of like this, like this metaphor. And the lure is the promise of, you know, the most open-eyed possible recognition of injustices in our country and the most radical possible action against those injustices. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are deep and serious injustices in our country. And as we open the conversation by saying, there's really scary political forces that may return to the White House. And so, of course, it is very appealing when somebody says, hey, here's the thing that's the most uncompromising, the most radical, 
Um, and that's what you have to embrace. It's, by the way, why I don't like the, the way of criticizing it or fighting back against it that I like to call not too farism. So it's like, oh, you know, these ideas are all sort of right and they're, and they're well-intentioned, but aren't they going a little bit too far? Because I understand why some people say, well, can you go too far in, in fighting against injustice? Can you go too far in, uh, you know, fighting for a good thing? Why, why shouldn't I go too far, right? What does that mean? Um, but, but actually, for me, it's not going too far in the wrong direction. Uh, so too far in the right direction. It is, in fact, in key ways going in the wrong direction, not because people are, are ill-intentioned, but because I think the vision for society that they have is actually ultimately impoverished. It's not sufficiently ambitious. So, you know, perhaps one good example of this is precisely this debate about standpoint theory and standpoint epistemology, right? So there's a, a long tradition of careful thought uh, that's arisen over the last 30 or 40 years about how who we are influences how we see the world and, and, and what we can know. And traditionally in epistemology and the theory of knowledge, philosophers didn't think about that. But René Descartes thought, what if a monster is trying to deceive me into you know, thinking that the world exists when actually I'm out there alone in the world? How can I answer that? He wasn't thinking about how his social situation is influencing that. He, he was standing in for all of humanity. Right? And then some people started to say, well, hang on a second. You know, if you're a, a black man in the United States, doesn't that influence how you perceive the world? Doesn't that allow you to see, um, you know, police violence and so on in a way that you might not as, as a white man? Um, or, you know, as a woman, don't you experience forms of sexual harassment or, you know, gender norms and stereotypes which assume you're going to be a caregiver or, you, you know, uh, should prioritize motherhood over other kinds of things in ways that are not going to happen to, to, to men? And, and that is right. And there's a subtle philosophical tradition that, of course, stamped epistemology that actually deals with that. But then the popularized form of that, standpoint theory, is much more extreme. And it doesn't just say, hey, it's hard for me to understand your experiences. I need to open my mind. I need to listen to you in order to do so. It says, I cannot understand those experiences. If we stand at different intersections of identity, we're never going to be able to understand each other. And so therefore, rather than having political communication, what we should do is just to defer to each other. Right. If, if, if I know that you come from a group that's more oppressed than mine, I should delegate to you, hold space, delegate to you, and just do whatever you ask me to do. And that, I think, is both wrong on the substance. I think we are, like, we are capable of understanding the injustices our fellow citizens face if we actually listen to them with an open mind. And it is wrong politically because very few people are going to be willing to delegate the judgment in that kind of way. And if they do delegate it, then they delegate it to the member of that group who already happens to agree with them. So really, they're just arguing by authority. And so that's why I want a more substantive vision of political solidarity. I, I hope for a country in which, you know, when I uh, hear fellow citizens saying that something bad's happening to them, I'm going to say, oh, well, I haven't experienced that. Perhaps it even seems implausible to me, but tell me about it. And then I'm going to assess what they say. But you know what? If they speak compellingly and they have some evidence and I have an open mind, I'm going to come and agree with them and say, yeah, I know that, you know, as a, as a black man growing up in New York City, uh, a lot of the times you would experience stop and frisk tactics, which were really demoralizing and damaging and scary. I've never experienced it myself, but yes, I've listened to people. I've, I've looked at some of the knowledge we have about it and that's really clear, right? I, can, I might not understand exactly what it feels like, but I know it's bad and unjust. I don't want to fight against it because I stand in genuine solidarity with my fellow citizens because that's not the kind of society in which I want to live. 
not because I say, I don't really understand you or what you're talking to me about, but I recognize you are more press group. So, you know, I delegate to you, whatever you want, I'll do. That's, that's not a inspiring vision of political solidarity. I think your book helped me get clearer about something that I've been working on in myself. I've criticized myself a lot lately on the podcast for the way that I handled the Trump years. And as we go into a new election cycle, I'm really trying to say, how do I ground myself during this time? And I think part of what I dislike about the way I handled it in the first cycle is that I did that delegation. Mm -hmm. I heard, I, I tried to listen, I tried to do the work. And what I heard back is, well, Beth, the stakes are so high here for people of other identity groups. And you are married to a man with two kids in suburbia. You are so privileged. You are so white. You are a Christian. You're part of the majority on every dimension. And so your role here is to support the people for whom the stakes are higher than you and to adopt the language of that kind of resistance posture. And it made me quite dismissive of ideas that I held for a long time in advance of that election and quite dismissive of people who are part of my circles of friends and family. And and I don't want to live that way again. And what I really appreciated in your book was that I was not being asked to reject the stories of the people that I've been seeking to listen to. Instead, I'm being invited to match the online version of that activism with the version that I see in reality. And what I see in reality is that the LGBTQ people in my actual life, who I love and am close to, are happy to eat at Chick-fil-A. And and I see that many of the Black parents in my life also do not think the school should separate students into affinity groups based on race, right? So I think in addition to saying it's not true that we can never understand each other based on our identity group, your book does a good job of saying also identity groups don't they're not homogenous. They don't see everything the same way within themselves. And we're kind of reducing that experience when we when we claim online that there is a voice of the Black community or a voice of the gay community or a, a voice of the trans community. Yeah. You know, in, in, in the book, I quote Bayard Rustin, um, you know, a, a great civil rights movement hero who, who was himself gay. And he says on this point, you know, the notion of the undifferentiated Black community is the intellectual creation of both whites and of certain small groups of Blacks who illegitimately claim to speak for the majority. So he was really attuned to the way in which a lot of the time the people who speak for a community, who claim to speak for the community, really are not very representative of it. And of course, um, you know, what's going on here is that often those people you know, are very highly educated, make a lot more money, um, move in often predominantly white progressive circles, and they broadly share the politics of those social circles as much as the politics of the people who happen to um, you know, share their skin color or their sexual orientation or or, or something like that. And, um, you know, that's what made uh, Pete Buttigieg's uh, line about Chick-fil-A so great, right? Um, I don't approve of politics, but I kind of like that chicken. That's, 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 that's what a lot of people are like. And I do worry, you know, coming back to Trump, that the misunderstanding of that is a fundamental problem uh, for, for beating Trump. You know, the the, the fundamental fact about the 2020 election, which Joe Biden did win, um, is that he won it in good part because he uh, significantly increased his share of a vote 
among white voters relative to how Hillary Clinton did in 2016. And by the way, uh, Donald Trump was competitive in that election, in good part because he increased the share of the vote among black voters, among Asian American voters, and especially among Latino voters. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need to understand that in order to actually hold a vision of the future of this country that's going to win the kind of, not just a majority to keep Trump out of the White House in 2024, but the kind of political majority which will force Republicans back to sanity. Because in the long run, as a scholar of democracy, I know that if you have one pro-democracy party and one anti-democracy party, it's not going to work, right? Sometimes the opposition will win. So what we actually need to move through this moment is just a clear, broad, resounding political majority that then forces the other political party to, to come back to sanity and to, and to moderate as well. And to do that, we can't assume that the sort of most far-left voices speak for their group uh, just because they, they claim they do. Just give, let me give you sort of two very quick examples of that. I mean, one, it's kind of a tired example by now, but, but it's telling, is that you know, every Hispanic advocacy group talks about Latinx people, but according to polls, one or 2% of Hispanic people in the country prefer that location. And yet, my university president, who I admire, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of every institutional leader in my sphere, in my world, uses Latinx because that small minority of people is sort of going to be angry if he doesn't say that, but everybody else is not going to protest in the same way if he does. This is how unrepresentative people start to speak for groups more broadly. And I think there's a problem here, um, especially for sort of, you know, college-educated people, people who perhaps are part of a sort of broader social elite, because what I see a lot of the time is, is what psychologists would call an availability heuristic. They're like, you know, what do African-Americans believe? And rather than actually going out and speaking to African-Americans from a broad walk of life or perhaps listening to, to a focus group or looking at a poll, they say, well, what do my black friends think? And a lot of people in these elite circles now, thankfully, do have black friends. But those black friends went to the same elite institutions and they have views that tend to be yeah. very progressive because those are the median views of members of those institutions. So they say, hey, I mean... You know, Jack and Jim and whoever else I know from Harvard or from, you know, Columbia or from wherever they went, they will have these super progressive views. So that must be representative of how black people think. That, that's a really dangerous political shortcut. I think we named so many things there. I think one of them, and you talk about this in your book, is when the stakes are high, there is this in-group, out-grouping, and you feel powerless in the face of the behavior of your opponents. So all you you can do is police your own group. And goodness gracious, have we experienced that on the progressive left in the last six years? Like there's limited electoral power and impact for a lot of different reasons. And so what do we do? We call out each other. We shut down each other's language, even, you know, in clear violation of some of these principles. I was on Ibram X. Kendi's Instagram page the other day. There was a controversy around Jamie Foxx using anti-Semitic language. The carousel, I think, was at best inconsistent and at worst harmful. And there were three or four Black Jewish women sitting at the intersection of that identity class who said, this is a problem, and they got shut down every single one of them. And I thought, I I didn't think this is what this was supposed to be about. Like, But it's it's the stakes are high, the policing gets even more intense, and there's this sense of, like you said, sort of like the Olympics of who's the biggest authority. And then there's this really weird purity situation, which you named so well, I think, around the idea of cultural appropriation. 
where it's like nobody's at like, well, who's appropriating who? And is this whose culture? And do you have a right to call it out? Or are you appropriating the culture before that? Because of course, culture builds on each other and we get ourselves twisted in knots. Then that goes through the wash of media consumption. And then it looks really ridiculous to the average American just dipping in and out of this political discussion. Yeah, one of the moments when I really had a kind of light bulb moment in in doing research for this book was figuring out what happened in these progressive spaces after 2016. I think the story of how the identity synthesis goes from campus to the rest of the society is complicated. It has to do with the rise of social media, with the way that transforms how people think about their own identities, with what kind of journalism it encourages and spreads in a viral manner with what are called the short master of the institutions, where people who imbibe these ideas at college go out into institutions and really sort of push for them to be implemented. There's, there's lots of things. But the final transformation happens after 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. And it's precisely because of that purity mechanism. You know, I found in this really interesting research that groups are actually usually quite receptive to inside critics. So, uh, you know, when I've been a member of a group for a long time and I say, hey, I worry that we're going over rails in a certain kind of way or I worry we're making a strategic mistake here, usually groups are relatively good at listening to that. And that's a really important mechanism for keeping them effective and sane. There's good research on this. But in situations of external threat, mm-hmm. internal critics are no longer heard. So when you have a feeling that we're under attack from the outside, internal critics are often seen as traitors and they're often actually evaluated worse than critics who come from outside of a group. So from having a sort of special place where people are going to, okay, you know, I know Sarah, I'm going to listen to her and what she has to say because I know she's, you know, of good intentions. Suddenly it's, how dare you speak up against it? Are you secretly a spy? You know, are you secretly a traitor? Are you secretly on the other side? And this is a key mechanism of what happened in these institutions. There's a great paper by an anthropologist in the 1990s who anticipated some of this literature, who said, how come the enemy of humanity always turns out to be in the office just down the hall? Mm. You know, in that moment after 2016, 2017, where many people were understandably rightly scared about what was going on in the country, and we all wanted to have a form of political agency, and we're starting to realize that all of the hopes for somehow getting rid of Trump and, you know, impeaching him or, you know, the, the, whatever was, was going to happen, it was not going to happen. Well, the one thing you have control over is your own political community, and you can try and purify that. Mm-hmm. And the most visible way of purifying that is to throw somebody out and tie and feather them because of some real or often perceived misstep. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. so much clarity in your writing about cultural appropriation. I love the phrase, the joy of mutual influence, and this Mm -hmm. emphasis that you put on the fact that every good thing, art, food, tradition, is a blend of cultures and has been from practically the beginning of time. And I also appreciated how you said often when we are criticizing something as cultural appropriation, there is something wrong with it. Yeah. But we're not naming what's wrong about it. It helped me so much. I remember we had this like mini controversy when we first started the podcast about whether white children could dress as Moana for Halloween. And by you talking about how sometimes we'll see a party, use the example in the book of a frat party where people are dressing for Cinco de Mayo in insulting costumes. And you say, what's wrong here is not the cultural appropriation of Cinco de Mayo, which is kind of a dubious holiday anyway. But what's wrong is that they are being insulting about this entire identity group of people. And that helped me figure out why I was never bothered by the white girl dressing as Moana, because that is celebratory, not condescending or degrading in any way. So I just, I found that description really helpful and wonder how you sort of came to that formulation. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this is one of the points that just, you know, really bothered me when I started seeing this crop up in in our culture. Um, you know, for me, sort of worries about cultural purity were always the preserve of a right. And there's a long tradition of that, right? Uh, Richard Wagner uh, worrying about how, you know, Jews in classical music in Germany were somehow going to make German music impure. Viktor Orban today worrying about how, you know, America's cultural influence is going to, you know, 
uh, somehow undermine pure Hungarian culture, right? This is what, what right-wingers usually worry about. Um, and I saw a surprisingly similar discourse crop up, you know, some of my friends and colleagues and, and many parts of the left, and it always kind of perturbed me. And so I really tried to understand what's going on here. And, and you've described it very well, but I think what's going on, first of all, is that there are some things that truly are bad that we call by the name of cultural appropriation. So one straightforward example is white musicians in the 1950s and 1960s having big careers by, you know, imitating music of black artists or sometimes outright taking their songs. That was clearly bad. Um, but what was bad about it can be described much more straightforwardly. What was bad about it is that those black musicians weren't allowed to have big careers, that they mm -hmm. couldn't perform in many concert venues, that many record labels wouldn't sign them, that many, you know, uh, buyers wouldn't buy records by, by black musicians. But that's what was wrong. It's very wrong. But you can explain it very straightforwardly. But, but that's what gives this sort of idea its intuitive power. So then we come to something like this controversy you mentioned, where this uh, uh, threat, uh, I believe at uh, uh, Texas A&M, uh, perhaps it was a different Texas university, uh, celebrated what they called already rather offensively a Cinco de Drinco party. And you had a bunch of mostly white kids showing up to this party, and some of them were dressed in sombreros or uh, ponchos, uh, and others were dressed in uh, construction vests or maids' outfits. Now, what's interesting about this is that, to, in my mind, the construction vest and the maid outfit is at least equally offensive, probably more offensive than the sombrero and the poncho. And the reason for that is that it seems to imply that all that Latinos are good for is to be domestic servants or manual workers, right? But many of our Latino fellow students at this university shouldn't really be at university. They should, you know, be back home cleaning up my mom's house, right? I mean, that's the message that's sent. That's deeply offensive. But if you think that this is a case of cultural appropriation, it's really hard to explain because a maid's outfit is not part of Latino culture. If anything, it's part of traditional French culture, I assume, mm -hmm. right? And the same with construction vests. Nothing Latino about a construction vest. So these are not instances of cultural appropriation. So to explain what's offensive here, and again, it's clearly offensive, you have to say what's bad is that intention to mock, right? That intention to offend, that intention to send the message that all that Latinos are good for is those forms of manual labor. That's what's offensive about this case, is not cultural appropriation. And so my rule of thumb for cultural appropriation is very simple. Sometimes something that's called cultural appropriation is in fact bad. When it's bad, it's nearly always possible to explain in straightforward language, not invoking cultural appropriation, what's bad about it. The exclusion, discrimination against uh, African-American artists in the 50s and 60s, the, the intention to mock your classmates in this cruel way. It's not hard to express those things. Where we struggle to express this, it's because usually there's nothing wrong. And in fact, um, as you know, philosophers like Anthony Appiah and others have, have described and, 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 and defended, you know, mutual cultural influence is a constant of human culture. Virtually anything we do and use today culturally um, is a result of a confluence of different cultures. Uh, and in fact, part of what I love about America, part of what this country will and should look like if we get things right, is that we're going to be influencing each other in all these kinds of ways. So true. Listen, I once had curry pizza in Utah. When it works in America, it works. It was delicious, you guys. Well, my aha moment reading your book was you are in the chapter about critical race theory. You're quoting this journalist who did profiles of these very famous scholars. 
And she summarized the key precepts that are law is subjective, neutrality is political, words are actions, and racism is permanent. And I thought, well, that's just a walk through what Beth and I have struggled with over the the last five years. It's just very succinct summary of how we struggle with the judicial system, how we struggle with acts of violence and how to distinguish those from harmful language, and definitely how we've struggled around conversations with race. I would add one that I've thought of since I've read your book, which I think there's this undercurrent of the presence of any oppression means the absence of progress. That's what I hear from my 14-year-old a lot. Like, we haven't gotten it right. That means everything is broken. Uh, We haven't perfected it, so all is lost. But I really want to make sure, like, when we are articulating those principles and critiquing them, you also do a beautiful job of articulating what we are striving for, the values of liberalism that we do want to articulate and we do want to strive for and we do want to center ourselves around the intuitive trap of some of these principles can't continue to lure us. Yeah, and and, and many of these themes that you talk about really do come from, from the intellectual history that, that, that are chronicle, um, you know, the idea that, that racism is permanent and that we really haven't made any progress comes straight from Derek Bell, the founder of Critical Race Theory, um, who has an article called The Permanence of Racism, in which he argues that America, um, he continued to argue until, until he passed away, but the America of, let's say, 2000 and 2005 was as uh, discriminatory, as racist, as was the America of 1850 or 1900 or 1950, just in different ways. And I find that offensive, not offensive to good people of America today, there's plenty of injustices that persist and we can you know, deal with a little bit of criticism. It's offensive to the people who suffered more extreme yes. forms of discrimination and injustice in, in, in the past. And who sacrificed mightily to address that injustice. And who sacrificed mightily to address that injustice in the name of living up to the principles of the country. I mean, one of the things mm-hmm. that's moving when you read Frederick Douglass and What to the Negroes the 4th of July, Martin Luther King Jr. or Barack Obama, is that all of them are unsparing in the description of injustices in their time, but they do hold on to the belief that things can get better. Um, you know, Martin Luther King says, um, you know, we've been written a check uh, that the bank won't accept. And he could say, as people like Derek Bell say, therefore we should rip up the check and set out and try something else. No, we demand that you cash that check because you have an idea of what the society is like that invokes those noble ideals. Those are good ideals. By what right are you excluding us from them? And mm-hmm. so the, the fundamental, you know, one way of talking about all of this is the different themes that we talked about earlier, from strategic essentialism to standpoint epistemology and so on. Another way of talking about it is to really boil down this identitarian philosophy to three main claims. And and those, I think, are, number one, that the key prism to understand the world is to think about it in terms of race, gender, and sexual orientation. You know, Robin DiAngelo once said that whenever a a white person interrupts a black person, they're bringing the entire apparatus of white supremacy to bear on them. And the, the striking thing about that sentence is that it makes me think that Robin DiAngelo has never had a black friend. Because, of course, that might be true in some situations, that somebody's using their social power to keep somebody else down. I'm sure that's happened many times. But also you interrupt each other. We've interrupted each other on this podcast. You interrupt each other when you're <laughs> friends. You interrupt each other if you're in a romantic relationship. That's part of how humans communicate. So if you think that any time that happens, 
you're bringing the apparatus of white supremacy to bear on somebody, it means that you can't actually be friends with members of that group. The, the second key claim is that you know, the only function of universal values like the Bill of Rights is to pull the wool over people's eyes and hide sort of real uh, forms of oppression from them. Um, that it just serves to perpetuate these forms of injustices. Um, and therefore, we've not really made any progress. And then the third claim is, therefore, we shouldn't aim to live up to these values. We should get rid of them and create a society in which how you're treated by the state and how we treat each other is forever going to be fundamentally dependent on the group to which you belong. So these are all fundamentally attacks on philosophical liberalism, fundamentally attacks on the founding values of the United States and other democracies. And there is a, a liberal response that can take on board some of the wisdom of uh, this tradition and other traditions that talk about the experiences of minority groups, but I think uh, do so without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And that's number mm -hmm. one. Yes, of course, to understand reality, we have to be aware of a kind of discrimination you might suffer on the basis of the group to which you belong. But there's also many other prisms for understanding how society works. Um, we have to also look at social class. We also have to look at ideology. We have to look at people's intentions. We have to look at historical context, right? And so, yes, in some contexts, the white person dropping a black person may be bringing white supremacy to bear on them. And the other one that can be, you know, uh, best friends bickering with each other. And that's a very different situation. Secondly, yes, it's true that America and every other society has failed to live up to its noble ideals in, 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 in deep and unjust ways. Yes, it's true that, uh, as Frederick Douglass pointed out in his famous speech, the principles of the Declaration of Independence rang hollow as long as African Americans were deeply uh, discriminated against or enslaved, and they continue to be discriminated against in important ways today. But uh, we have been able to make progress towards having a less sexist, less homophobic, less discriminatory society. And that is in good part because people demanded inclusion under these principles. And therefore, this is the most important difference. The society we should aim for is not one where who you are will fundamentally determine how you're treated, but rather a society in which what group you're born into comes to determine less of your life opportunities, of your treatment, of the way you're seen, so that we can actually treat each other as, as true equals. That is what our ambition should be. And that is what the ambition of many liberation movements from you know, the, the gay activists who fought for same-sex marriage to the black activists who, who, who made up the core of the civil rights movement have been fighting for for many decades. I thought it was helpful, your distinction between race-blind and racism-blind mm. to that end, saying that it is, of course, important to be conscious of identity groups, but that our aspiration should be to move beyond them in the way that we fundamentally treat each other. I want to ask you about the one place that I still feel some friction. You include in the book a very full-throated defense of free speech and talk about the importance of speech as, as a universalist objective. And I, I think I broadly agree. I have a feeling that if we were presented with 100 scenarios, you and I would agree on most of, of, of what free speech requires in those scenarios. I am having a hard time in a number of contexts figuring out where the public-private distinction around speech should give way. 
So you talk in the book about how it is important to have free speech as a as a First Amendment principle, but also culturally. And you talk about deplatforming. And I really struggle with this because in the internet age, I have a hard time taking seriously some of the rallying cries around banned books because those books are still available in the world. You know, I think it's hard to truly ban a book here in 2023. I also think it's unwise to try to ban a book. I think a lot of Florida's curriculum standards have gone in a in a really anti-democratic direction. But I think what I need some some clear principles around is when are we talking about free speech being jeopardized versus discernment and wisdom and an appropriate amount of social shame that does help us adhere to some of these universalist principles? And when are we just talking about curation? Because the world is vast and we can only uh, have so many voices at one time on any particular subject. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, I think that's a very fair question. First of all, let me say that I agree with you, obviously, on some of the stuff that's going on in Florida. I debated Chris Rufo on NPR about you know, the Stop Woke Act uh, uh, for that reason. And, you know, I, I am ultimately critical of the identity synthesis, but when I teach on these subjects in, in college, um, and I teach, you know, weeks on cultural appropriation, weeks on free speech, my goal is for students to understand the arguments on both sides and to be fully comfortable making an argument that agrees with me, but also an argument that disagrees with me. That's what I think of as my role as an educator. And as a result, in my classes, I assign Derek Bell, I assign Kimberly Crenshaw, I assign all of these people. I could not teach that class in a public college or university in Florida uh, if, which seems unlikely, the Stop Work Act is ultimately find, found constitutional because it, it, it bans the teaching of identity politics or critical race theory in public colleges and universities in the state of Florida. That, I think, is just a complete perversion of what universities should be like and what academic freedom should be. So just, just, just sort of to start off with, I fully agree with you on that. You're right that there is a, a careful line to be drawn here. And the reason for that is that, on the one hand, I think we need a real culture of free speech, not just legal guarantees of free speech, for people to be able to bring the whole selves to political conversations. I'm struck and honestly horrified by how often people I will meet for lunch will say, casually, well, of course, I would never say this publicly. And this is not people saying secret, terrible things to me. They're the kinds of things we've been mm-hmm. saying to each other over the course of the last hour. But people are really scared. These are you know, professors, journalists, institutional leaders, corporate leaders. I mean, really influential people who feel like I can't actually say the truth when I talk to people. By the way, sometimes it's politicians who are worried of their own staff in what they can say. And they're more worried about what the staff is going to say than winning the next election, which, given the stakes, is not a good damn thing. You know, Somebody asked me once, mm-hmm. why do we not have any charismatic politicians in the Democratic Party? Well, we have a few. But one of the reasons is that so many Democrats are so worried about how they talk about the world and what they say, that it's hard to be charismatic. So I think all of this has real, real costs. On the other hand, you have a very basic liberal principle, which is the freedom of association, right? I get to decide myself whether to invite you to dinner. And if I want to stop inviting you to dinner because you've offended me, that is my good right in a free society. Now, if you know, you're know you in a social environment where everybody stops inviting you to dinner because of what you said, that's going to feel really, really crummy for you. But that's the right of the people around you, right? So how do we balance these two instincts? I'll say a couple of things. One, there are certain areas in which 
we can, in fact, have sensible laws and regulations. So your friend can stop inviting you to dinner because they find what you say offensive, but your credit card company shouldn't be allowed to stop doing business with you, right? In the same way in which we don't think that a water utility or an electricity utility should be able to punish their uh, customers for their political views. I think that should be true of a very broad range of uh, financial institutions and other kind of basic service providers. I don't think American Airlines should be allowed to say, you're not allowed to fly on this plane because we don't like what you believe. If you start shouting about your views on the plane, that's a different matter. Yeah. But just because you have a blog where you say things that many people will consider offensive does not mean that a private company should be able to stop you from flying around the country. I think that those are just some basic guidelines to preserve free speech. And by the free speech, often for marginalized people. Who makes decisions about who is punished in that way? By definition, the powerful. And the idea that in a systematic way this is going to help the marginalized, I think, is just deeply and hopelessly um, naive. Um, but beyond that, I do think that in our own kind of social circles, we should look for the line which is perhaps sometimes difficult to trace, which certainly shouldn't be enforced by the state or by regulations, where, you know, my right to say I'm going to stop inviting you to dinner because I don't like what you believe turns into, you know, a culture which uh, really just becomes deeply orthodox in constraining ways where we can no longer hold it, you know, have real conversations with each other. And Jonathan Rauch, a really interesting thinker, has offered sort of a few hallmarks of that kind of culture. So they include punitiveness, mm-hmm. where it's not just I'm going to stop inviting you to dinner, but I'm going to fire you from your job. You know, deplatforming, where it's not just, you know, I run a publication, I decide, I curate, I decide who I think is interesting and smart and who's not. And part of that is, you know, my political set of views. I might not, uh, you know, invite people whom I deeply disagree um, to write for me. That's fine. Um, But this often involves demands to de-platform others. So it's, you know, it's not just I'm not going to platform them. It's if you platform them, I'm going to stop talking to you. I'm going to try to organize a boycott of you. Not just excluding from the platform, but using the platform to further exclude. Right. Or saying, unless you also exclude, I'm going to organize mm-hmm. a boycott of, of of you. And part of this is just sort of social media pylons and, yeah. you know, open letters and so on. These are not hard and fast rules, right? But be on the lookout for those kinds of things. When you see the punishment in your social circle, take the form of his punitiveness, of demanding that people be fired, of saying, not just, am I not going to give you a platform? Anybody who does give you a platform, I'm going to malign. Then I think, you know, we're getting into a dangerous zone. Well, what I really appreciated in your free speech argument is that you said, look, it is the risk of if we don't do it, that's what we need to focus on. I'm not saying that if we open it all up and there's this marketplace of ideas, the best, wisest ones will always rise to the top. That's not the point. It's that the danger of restricting free speech is really what we need to keep our eye on because it does create, like you said, that the restriction of ideas, the restriction of conversation, the fear, the punitiveness, the pylons that we've all witnessed, that we all live in fear of. I hear the same thing. Well, I would never say this in publicly. I have said that, you know, like as a person who speaks publicly on the internet. It's not like I've never used that phrase. I have. So I think keeping our eyes on the danger and the way it can spread when we restrict it and not feeling like we have to argue that opening it up to everybody will fix all our problems. That's not the point. Yeah, and and, and thanks for pointing out this keep part of the argument there, which is, I love John Stuart Mill's on Liberty, chapter two, talking about all the great things we get from having free speech, and that's the sort of general tradition in how philosophers have thought about it. 
I, I agree with those. I'm most concerned about the bad things that happen mm -hmm. if you don't have free speech. And one of those is that you empower the powerful, that by definition, who's going to have the right to decide who gets shunned, who gets censored? It's not going to be the most marginalized because the most marginalized don't hold power. And I think here there's sort of a fundamental yeah. weird progressive misalignment where because a lot of these conversations used to happen on college campuses or in super progressive organizations, we always assume that the sort of rules of censorship are going to favor the super progressive against anything we consider offensive. Well, as we've been saying, Donald Trump might be back in the White House in 2024. How much power do you want him to give? Uh, to, do you want to give him to determine where the lines are visible? do or don't lie. Do you really think that in 25 years, the CEO of MasterCard or, uh, you know, of whatever financial organization is very likely to have exactly the right kinds of enlightened beliefs? And perhaps, but perhaps not. I'd rather not take that risk. Yeah. Well, we could talk with you for another hour, I'm certain, and not cover everything that was illuminating in the book. To your point about the risks associated with suppressing speech. I did a few times reading your book think, oh, are people <laughs> going to be mad at us for reading this book and talking about it? And I'm sure that you feel a, a certain sense of risk in having written it. So I appreciate that you did mm -hmm. anyway. And I especially hope that people will read it because so much of the book is not just critique of these ideas, but a really beautiful defense of universal principles yep. that I know will help me, especially as we go into a new election cycle. I told Beth the emotion I felt most often reading your book was just relief. It just felt like, okay, hmm. okay, this is what I'm feeling. This is someone articulating it and with a vision for where we're going. I just thought it was so incredibly helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Beth, are you playing Connections? I'm playing Connections. Who isn't playing Connections? Everybody's playing Connections, watching Suits, and watching that Blue Zones documentary. We are all doing that simultaneously. That's how it feels. Now, I am not watching Suits, but my People parents would suits. like me to get in on that action. So I, maybe maybe I'll get there. Connections, though. What a fun game. Okay. Have you played Code Names? the game it's based on? A lot of Code Names during the pandemic played here Loved in the Silver's House. Yes. The problem with Code Names is you need a big group. You do. It's We got the version that you can play with two people. Okay. And it's okay, but it's just not as fun. You do need a group. But they have found the secret sauce of Codenames and put it in Connections. I think that's right. So if you have not played Codenames or Connections, they give you, what is it, four by four? Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah, 16 words. And you're trying to figure out and put them in groups of four that they are connected by. It could be anything. It could be a movie title. It could be a, like blank, and they all have the same word after them. Or it could be like they all have silent S's. Like, you don't, I mean, it could be anything, but you got to figure out what it is. Now, figuring out, I think, is a theme of what's going on with connections right now. It's a little Mm. clunky in the app to find it. That's true. That took them forever to put it in the games tab. And it's still not on on the iPad version, guys. The short form of the games tab, it's not there, and I think it should be. And also... Some days it is way too easy and some Mm -hmm. days it is way too hard. I don't think they have found the sweet spot of like challenging and interesting, but you can still get it because you can only make three mistakes. Yeah. They take away if you if you group four and you don't have it, they take away one of your mistakes and you've got to figure it out rapidly. But they have figured out that we all love the daily game, like the Wordle. Yes. We love a Wordle. And they've gotten the sweet spot with Wordle, so I trust them to get there because Wordle is, like, really good right now. Like, they're finding the words where you're like, dag, what is this word? You're, like, using all your vowels. There's, like, one vowel, three consonants left, and you got to figure it out. They've they've hit a really good 
speed with Wordle. So I, I trust them to get there with connections. But listen, I do like a daily game. It's so nice when you sort of want a little, you just want a little break. Mm-hmm. You want a little break on your phone, but you don't want to be on TikTok for three and a half hours. So you're like, I'm just going to play connections. That's going to be my fun little break. It's a one and done. You can get back to your life. It's really, it's the daily game is nice. Now, if they I, have too many daily games, I don't know if we still have that benefit. <laughs> I don't think they can have too many daily games. They probably can, but I don't think so because I have a group of them that I do every morning. The word games, I like to start the day off that way. It's just a good way to wake my brain up. Mm-hmm. It's so much better than scrolling Instagram or Facebook or something. Oh, my God. I really like just I get my phone Massive and I do the better. little games and I'm awake now and then I go take my shower and get on with it. Chad and I love doing spelling bee together. I think that's so fun. I love the mini crossword. I feel like it's in a really good place right now where it's like challenging enough, but not too hard. And I've just started doing tiles. It took me a while to figure out how to do tiles. But that for me is like a cigarette break. And this is my point about I don't think there are going to be too many games because I like having a daily game to go to instead of social media or some chips or whatever I would be doing to take that minute. Well, spelling bee, I think, is a little bit tougher not because you can spend an enormous amount of time on spelling bee. Now, Maggie freed me. She said, just get the pantogram and then move on with your life. And I was like, Maggie, that is genius. So that's what I do. I get the pantogram. And if I can't, I just move on. I'm like, eh, I don't know what it is today. And then I move on. So it does. I'm not quite as addicted to spelling bee because it can be so expansive. I mean, there are lots of words, but there's a new spelling bee buddy where I think they like help you or I haven't tried it yet. I just got the email about it. I'm all over this. Listen, Chuck, okay. I love this game. We will work on it all day. We want to be geniuses by the end of the day. Doesn't have okay. to be in one sitting, but by the end of the day, we want to be geniuses. Chad's brain is an amazing mystery to me like the ocean in many ways, but especially around <laughs> spelling bee because I have to look at it to get any words. Yes, Nicholas can do the same thing. He can let those letters just float around in his I brain all day. I have to see it. He'll be like, what are the letters? And I'm like, I, I can tell you the letters and that's going to do literally anything? Are you crazy? Are you a crazy person? Chad will ask me the letters. He'll leave to go get coffee no. or go to the golf course I or whatever. Know. He'll text me. Here's the word. I'm like, you have Got to be kidding me. Yes. Nicholas is the same thing, and I don't like it. I think it's I think it's a weird superpower, and it makes me uncomfortable. But listen, you're just a word person or not. My sister-in-law has a freakish talent for Boggle. Like, I'm sure she's running Spelling Bee. Like, it's insane. I'm like, oh, you need to find a way to monetize that shit right there. Well, I want to say this about the Spelling Bee Buddy, because I think this is key to a lot of what's going on with these New York Times games. So with the Bee Buddy, they are in real time saying... Good job finding words that begin with C, keep looking, there are more. And then you see a little chart of the two-letter combinations and how many CL words you have left or how many CR words you have left. Oh, I would like that because I checked that hint tab a million times. It is it is a more user-friendly version of the hint tab. Okay. And the reason that I think it's so interesting, I think this is how they've gotten Wordle so good. They are getting so much data from all of this. <gasps> And they are constantly looking at that data. So you know that they've got like a target of what percentage of people they want to solve this thing in four tries versus three versus five, whatever. And I think connections will get better because they're going to they're going to take that data and figure out we want the average person to have one mistake or whatever. Yeah, no. And I like the history game that they promised us and then never shows up again. Did you remember the history game they gave us? I didn't do the history game, no. Oh, the history game was so fun. It came out in the morning newsletter, which is where they're starting to promote these. And they give you one event 
and then in time, and then they start dropping down historical events, and you have to place them in the timeline. It's so fun, but I think it's only once a week, which is a problem. And then I can never find it. I have to, like, remember that it's only once a week and then go find it. And I don't think they're consistently doing it once a week, even though I really, really liked it. That sounds really fun, and I would enjoy that. Listen, keep adding to my pack of cigarettes. This is what I need. <laughs> I need good, quick little games that are a break. I also would just like to say to the New York Times, since we talk about you all the time, right. I am, like, working my way through New York Times cooking right now. We would Love be happy it. for you to be, like, a podcast sponsor or something because we've been doing the work here. Yeah, podcast sponsor. We really do. Between the Ezra Klein show and the games, and I've been reading the print New York Times, which is just... The absolute best practice. I love it so much. I cannot say enough. Even though I, I get it like a week later. It doesn't even matter. There's nothing in the Sunday New York Times. Like these are always like big, longer, juicier articles about something that's happening in the world. So it is, and I've gotten, I think, three or four so far. And never do I hit something that I'm like, oh, that's old news. Like it does, they're always still applicable. Right. The most interesting article about Bangladesh. I learned so much about the negotiations between the UAW and the car manufacturers. Like, I just, I love it so much. You know what I have mentioned about right now is the podcast Hard Fork. I oh, cannot yeah. stop talking about Hard Fork. I love that show. Anyway, they're doing good work over there. I we know, connecting this back to our conversation with Yasha, that it is quite fashionable to be mad at the New York Times all it the is. time about something. They got a lot of good products out there that make my it's life true. better. And they're making money, which is what I want newspapers to do so they continue to exist. So I'm not mad at them. All right. Thank you for joining us here at Pantsuit Politics. We can't wait to hear y'all's reactions and responses to our conversation with Yasha Monk. And also, don't forget to reach out if you're interested in having us come to speak to your community or organization. Reverend Allison Drake of East Dallas Christian Church said that this is such a divided time and that Beth and I were able to offer grace and healing to everyone who attended. She said, we brought hope to all who attended, which is exactly what we love to hear after an event. And we'd love to bring hope to your community as well. Check out our website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com, for more information or email Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. Catherine Vollmer. Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Linda Daniel. Emily Neasley. The Hattons! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Amy Whited. Emily Helen Olson. Lee Shea McDonough. Morgan McHugh. Danny Osmond. Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. Jeff Davis, Joshua Allen, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.